0: 1 Kings chapter 6 In the 480th year after the Israelites had come out of Egypt in the 4th year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziv the 2nd month he began to build the temple of the Lord the temple that king Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long 20 wide and 30 high the portico at the front of the main hall of the temple extended the width of the temple that is 20 cubits and projected 10 cubits from the front of the temple He made narrow, clear-story windows in the temple. Against the walls of the main hall and inner sanctuary, he built a structure around the building, in which there were side rooms. The lowest floor was five cubits wide, the middle floor six cubits, and the third floor seven. He made offset ledges around the outside of the temple, so that nothing would be inserted into the temple walls. In building the temple, only blocks dressed at the quarry were used, and no hammer, chisel, or any other iron tool was heard at the temple site, While it was being built, the entrance to the lowest floor was on the south side of the temple. A stairway led up to the middle level, and from there to the third. So he built the temple and completed it, roofing it with beams and cedar planks. And he built the side rooms all along the temple. The height of each was five cubits, and they were attached to the temple by beams of cedar. The word of the Lord came to Solomon As for this temple you are building, If you follow my decrees, carry out my regulations, and keep all my commands and obey them, I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David your father. And I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people Israel. Let me pray as we come to God in his word. Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you have made yourself known to us. Lord, you do that through your word. You have done that here in scripture. You did it by speaking to the king. And so, Lord, I pray that now you would speak to us as we listen to your word, that your Holy Spirit would show us the truth of your gospel, that he would convict us of sin and turn us toward Christ our Savior. Lord, I pray that we would listen to your words. We would find in them the hope that we need. And Lord, that in seeing your work in the Old Testament, we would see the work you have for us now, your church, to make the gospel known among the nations. And so, Lord, we pray that you would work through faith and through the ministries and missionaries we support. Lord, we thank you today for Jeff and Amber Scott, our missionaries who serve with Disciple Makers Campus Ministry. Lord, as they worship with us, I pray that they would be encouraged, encouraged by your people who have come alongside them to pray with them and for them, to support them in their ministry. Lord, take the gospel to the campuses of our country so that from there, the, the hope of Jesus Christ would spread into the, into the workplace, into our communities, and Lord, around the world. Lord, raise up disciples who will follow after you, learning from you. And so, Lord, make us disciples, ones who are willing to humble ourselves and listen to your word, to your truth. Lord, we come praying in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Many of the most visited tourist sites around the world are religious. Sites of pilgrimage for the faithful. But sites of interest for really anyone. You don't need to be a believer to appreciate the beauty of some of these locations. The ancient Karnak Temple in Egypt along the Nile. Or you could go to the Bodh Gaya, the birthplace of Buddhism and its temple which has been built there. Or the holy city of Hinduism, Varanasi, India. Or Meiji, the Shinto shrine, which welcomes millions each year in Tokyo. You can wander and find Stonehenge. Or visit the Hagia Sophia, a church, and then a mosque, and now a museum. Or go and and gaze at the beauty of the Sistine Chapel. The tour guides who describe these places might be among the faithful although that will be harder at some than others, harder at Karnak than at the Sistine Chapel. But you can go as a, as a tourist and just gaze at the beauty of the architecture, wonder about the, the cultures that have, that have raised up these places, and see the beauty around you. And so our, our first viewing of Solomon's temple here in 1 Kings chapter 6 comes with a tour guide's descriptions. It's as if we walk to see this temple, to see what it means. And so we come as those interested, but perhaps yet not yet faithful worshipers. We come to learn what what does this temple mean for the people of Israel? And so our tour guide begins by reminding us here in 1 Kings of the historical context. Look back with me at verse 1 we're told not only about what year it is of Solomon's reign or what month this takes place, but but look at verse 1. In the 480th year after the Israelites had come out of Egypt, after the Israelites had come out of Egypt, do you see what what the the guide is showing us? The the, the first thing you need to remember is the foundation here. The foundation is is not the, the stones which you see which have been quarried quarried far away so that there would be no hammering here at this site. The the first thing you need to notice is the foundation here is the promise of God, the rescuing God. Remember, this is the God who, who brought his people out of Egypt. He is the God who rescued them, who showed his power, his majesty through the plagues and through rescuing them, through the crossing of the Red Sea. And now, these people, the ones whom God rescued, have a permanent location for God to be with them. God is the God who rescues them. Now we see the description then in verse 2 of the the size of this temple. Now a a cubit's probably about 18 inches, is what scholars would would estimate. And so this building is not enormous. It's it's not one that that if you saw, you would say, well, let's put this on the list of the, the great wonders of the ancient world. Because it's not its size that gives it its significance. Although if you were a pilgrim, coming up to the holy city of Jerusalem, and you saw this, this temple rising there on the top of, of the mountain, you would be impressed by its beauty. But not because of its size, but because of what it signifies. We, we see a description in, in verse 6 of the, the parts of the building that there are these three main sections as you go in. There is the, the that once you walk past the, the entrance, there's the main sanctuary where the priests would would perform the, the worship, but then the innermost sanctuary where the high priest goes but just once a year. And if we were reading all the way through, and, and we'll continue in the chapter, but if, but if we were reading from the end of verse 10, it would be easy enough for us to skip verses 11, 12, and 13 and jump right to verse 14. For we have a description in verse 10 of the, the roof of the temple and then the summary statement in verse 14 that Solomon built the temple and completed it. Verses 11, 12, and 13 are an interruption. It's as if while the tour guide is is showing us this magnificent structure, we're interrupted by something that's much more important. Now, some skeptics might look and say, well, that interruption shows that it's not really part of of the truth. No, I think what the interruption does is show us the significance of what is said in these verses. It's to to disorient us and, and cause us to focus our attention on these verses. Because here, the word of the Lord came to Solomon. You, we've been, our tour has been interrupted. God himself is going to speak. And look at, look at what God says to Solomon. Look at the way the, the promise comes in verse 13. God makes this great and glorious promise. He says in verse 13, I will live among the Israelites. I will not abandon my people. Do you hear that promise? This temple has significance because God says, I will live here. I will tabernacle, I will dwell among my people. For generations, the people carried the, the portable tabernacle, the tent, of which this temple is, is the permanent replacement. The, the structure which replaces that, that tent. The, the walls of, of fabric and the floor of dirt of that temple have now been replaced in a much more glorious and, and grand way but it is the promise that God is making a, a permanent residence. He's moving into the neighborhood. He's going to live right here with his people. But, but look at verse 12. The promise of verse 13 follows on verse 12, where God says to Solomon, as for this temple you are building, if you follow my decrees, if you carry out my regulations, if you keep all my commands, if you obey them. I will fulfill the, through, through you the promise I gave to your father David. Now, in, in English, our English translations, the, 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 the description there that it's, that it's you is, is unclear to us. Is that you, one person, Solomon, or is that you, everybody who's listening to the voice of God here? The Hebrew and most other languages don't have the same trouble that English does. It's clear. It is you, singular, you, Solomon. You see, all the promises of God are now being placed on the shoulders of this one king, this one man, God's anointed. Solomon, if you follow my decrees, then I will fulfill the promise I made. Solomon, if you keep this promise now at this point, we might be somewhat encouraged here in 1 Kings. For Solomon is the wisest man in the world. He's the greatest king. His kingdom has peace on every side. He has the opportunity to build this temple. And so we might feel comfortable that the promise of God is dependent here upon the obedience of the king. Now, if the tour stopped here with a quick overview and a brief description, we might be disappointed. I mean, imagine if you've traveled to one of these locations around the world. You've you've gone. You've read the the tour guides. You've, you've, You've already bought the coffee table book. You're ready to experience and walk in. And the tour guide shows you the outside of the building and says, well, I'm sorry, but the tour ends early today because they're doing construction on the inside, so you can't walk in. You'd be disappointed. I didn't come here to see the outside of the chapel. I came to walk in and gaze at Michelangelo's frescoes. So for you to tell me it's closed today, I fly out tomorrow. This is my one opportunity to see the inside. It would be horribly disappointing. And and we might feel the disappointment if the tour ended here. And so the tour guide continues and takes us inside on the VIP portion of the tour. But it's important for us to, to remember. The tour, for most Israelites, stopped here. Most Israelites never saw the inside of the temple. Yes, they saw it, some of them, while it was being built. But as soon as it was done, as soon as it was dedicated, none of them got to go inside except the priests. Only the priests entered this temple. Only they went in as the mediators, the ones who stood between God and the people. And that inner sanctuary, that holy of holies, the holy place, the most holy place, that very inner room was only entered once each year, and only by one man, the high priest. And so the access that the Israelites had to this temple for most of them was only through a mediator. The description they had was the same description you have. Merely the description of God's word of what took place, what was included inside. And so we get the behind-the-scenes, the VIP tour. Listen, I'm going to continue to read. I'm going to finish the chapter, First Kings 6, beginning at verse 14. So Solomon built the temple and completed it. He lined its interior walls with cedar boards, paneling them from the floor of the temple to the ceiling, and covered the floor of the temple with planks of pine. He partitioned off 20 cubits of the rear of the temple with cedar boards from floor to ceiling to form within the temple an inner sanctuary, the most holy place. The main hall in the front of this room was 40 cubits long. The inside of the temple was cedar carved with gourds and open flowers. Everything was cedar. No stone was to be seen. He prepared the inner sanctuary within the temple to set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord there. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 wide, and 20 high. He overlaid the inside with pure gold. And he also overlaid the altar of cedar. Solomon covered the inside of the temple with pure gold, and he extended gold chains across the front of the inner sanctuary, which was overlaid with gold. So he overlaid the whole interior with gold. He also overlaid with gold the altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary. In the inner sanctuary, he made a pair of cherubim of olive wood, each 10 cubits high. One wing of the first cherub was 5 cubits long. The other wing was 5 cubits, 10 cubits from wingtip to wingtip. The second cherub also measured 10 cubits, for the two cherubim were identical in size and shape. The height of each cherub was 10 cubits. He placed the cherubim inside the innermost room of the temple. With their wings spread out, the wing of one cherub touched one wall, and the wing of the other touched the other wall, and their wings touched each other in the middle of the room. He overlaid the cherubim with gold. On the walls around the temple, in both the inner and outer rooms, he carved cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. He also covered the floors of both the inner and outer rooms of the temple with gold. For the entrance of the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood with five-sided jams, And on the two olive wood doors, he carved cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, and overlaid the cherubim and palm trees with beaten gold. In the same way, he made four-sided jams of olive wood for the entrance to the main hall. He also made two pine doors, each having two leaves that turned in sockets. He carved cherubim, palm trees, and opened flowers on them and overlaid them with gold, hammered evenly over the carvings. And he built the inner courtyard of three courses of dressed stone and one course of trimmed cedar beams. The foundation of the temple of the Lord was laid in the fourth year, in the month of Ziv. In the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, the eighth month, the temple was finished. In all its details, according to its specifications, he had spent seven years building it. And this is the the inner access which only the priests would have ever gotten. To go inside this temple, to see the beauty of, And the glory, we we see the description of the the walls covered with wood and carved with the the beauty of creation, gourds and palm trees and open flowers, and with the heavenly glory of the cherubim. And in that inner sanctuary, the the two giant cherubim with their wings spread, covered in gold, standing there. I mean, that description of of gold everywhere you looked is is overwhelming. Just, Just there, describing the inner sanctuary, in verses 20, 21, and 22, in just those three verses, six times we're told he put gold on everything, 11 times in the chapter, the description. Now, now you might think, that seems a little bit, of, a little bit too much, a little overwhelming. I mean, just, just think, what's the price of gold this week? How, how much gold would you need to cover this much space? How much did he spend on this temple? Because if you've ever gotten to tour one of the, the, the great great homes of, of America, my family, we, we had opportunity this spring break to visit Newport, Rhode Island, and see the summer cottages of the Vanderbilts. And by summer cottage I mean the biggest mansion you can imagine. And you walk in and you see this a giant room with, with carvings everywhere and everything gilded with gold, for this is the height of the gilded age. And it's overwhelming in its beauty but it's also in some sense a little disgusting for you think this is how they decided to spend their money they they thought well what should we do with with this beautiful carving what should we do with this room we're going to use six weeks a year you know what let's cover every inch of it in gold because that would show people how great and wonderful we are. See, that's, that, that, that could be our initial reaction when we get this VIP tour of Solomon's temple. Really, Solomon? This is what you decided to do with your great wealth and your great power? You decide to cover the floor with gold? I mean, even the Vanderbilts weren't that gaudy. So we might walk in and think it's, it's just too much. But is it? For whom is he building this temple? He's building it for Yahweh, the rescuing Savior of his people. Yahweh has made a promise that he will come and live among them. He will dwell here. See, now, I I could walk into your life, and we could look around at the ways in which you've spent your gold, your treasure, your wealth, and I could say, yeah, I think that's too much. I don't think you should have spent it there. You could do the same in my life, surely. We could look around and think, "I'm, I'm not sure that was the best use. But if it is money, if it is wealth to be invested in God's kingdom, and for Solomon here in God's house, then there is no expense too great. There's no, there's no cost too extravagant. For this is for God. And so if, 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 if I were to look at your checkbook or your investments or your things and, and, and you were to show me what you've given to God, I couldn't say, I think that's too much. For there is nothing you could give to God which would be too much. For what is Solomon doing? He's he's showing the glory and the majesty and the power of God. And remember, this this isn't a display of Solomon's great power and wealth. For who gets to go inside? It's just the priests. They work for him. They're his servants. See, Solomon has invested in this temple because he sees the greatness and the grandeur and the beauty of God. And the descriptions then of the the cherubim carved on the doors, carved on the walls, is a picture of of God's holiness. Where these angels, these representations of these beings without sin, the ones who have not fallen, whose purpose is to worship God, to serve Him faithfully. It's a picture for us of the holiness and the majesty of God. And we're on this, this VIP tour, given access then to the inner sanctuary. In verse 16, it's called the Most Holy Place. This cube there at the rear of the temple where the the high priest goes once a year, this is the inner sanctuary. This is where the Ark of the Covenant will sit. This is where the, the annual sacrifice is brought. Because this inner sanctuary, this Most Holy Place was visited only once a year. We're told what takes place if we turn back to Leviticus chapter 16. That's the third book of the Bible. As the people, are, as the people have been freed from slavery, God gives them the, the description of what will take place on the Day of Atonement, that day when the priest, the high priest, will enter the most holy place. In Leviticus, it's there in the tabernacle, that moving temple that they took with them. But it's the description of what will take place in this inner sanctuary. The summary uh, is given to us at the end of Leviticus 16, where we're told about the high priest and his sons who will succeed him. We're told in Leviticus 16, verse 32, the priest who is anointed and ordained to succeed his father as high priest is to make atonement. He's to put on the sacred linen garment and make atonement for the most holy place, for the tent of meeting and the altar, and for the priests and all the people of the community. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. So that's what took place on the day of atonement. The high priest would bring the blood of sacrifice and offer an atonement, an atonement of sins for the people. And so here, having now seen the -the behind-the-scenes VIP tour, we can begin to understand the theological significance of, what's, of what this temple means. The, the temple is built on the foundation of the promises of God. God is the one who, who has rescued his people from slavery. God is the one who, who has promised now his presence. We have the promise of God, the presence of God. He will dwell here among his people. This is where God will live. And we have a picture of the forgiveness Of God, that atonement can be made, that a sacrifice can be offered to cover the sins of the people. Now, we could conclude our tour here. I've read the whole chapter. You have your pictures, your memories. You can print out your your photo book when you get home from this trip. But if we end here, it might be mere historical lessons that we've learned. We've learned something about what was true for the Israelites— and so when we read the Old Testament, we need to not stop there, and this is true for the New Testament as well, not merely learn what did it mean back then for the people. We need to know what does it mean for me now. We need a personal tour. We need to make it personal. But even as I suggest a personal application, a personal significance, you might hesitate because, because I've, I've reminded you of the shrines and temples around the world where millions and billions of people will go to give their worship in a different way. And so you might think, well, who is to say that this temple, that this way of worship, that this God is worth worshiping? I mean, as a citizen of the world, you might think, wouldn't it be better if we didn't pass judgment on those other temples and what took place there? Wouldn't it be better if we said all of these are ways To make yourself right with God. Well, that could be true if that's what religion was. If if true religion was about finding a way to make ourselves right with God, then we would see in in all of these temples and shrines the different ways in which, which people throughout history and even today have attempted to do that. But really, it's not a generous or gracious thing if there is a true God and he has made himself known. For then you're not merely being nice by letting other people worship in their own way. And I don't mean we should stop them from doing so. We should protect their opportunities to do so. But we should tell them that their way of worshiping is false, is wrong, it's untrue. Because the gracious thing to do would be to point them to the truth of what God has told us. Because there is one God, the God of the universe, Yahweh. The God of his people, Israel. The God who has made himself known to us. And so it's not merely enough for us to reflect upon the the historical significance of Solomon's temple. We need to stop and realize, what does this mean for me? Because God himself is speaking to us. And God is showing us that religion is not a way for us to to get ourselves up up to heaven to, to atone for our own sins. But the true religion, biblical religion, is the way in which God has come down to us and made himself known to us. God is the one. Who makes the promises to us God is the one who fulfills his promises because in the Old Testament the holy of holies was this limited space this cube within the back of the temple that was where the presence of God dwelled, where God revealed himself to his people but you and I don't have access there the presence of God would have been limited We've seen the weight of the promises resting upon the shoulders of Solomon, and while we might be encouraged at this point, it doesn't take long for us to see that, that if the promises rest upon this king, then the promises will fail. We've seen the possibility of forgiveness, but we need to know if that forgiveness could mean something for me. See, David wanted to build a, temple for the name of the Lord his God. Solomon said, I will build a temple for the name of the Lord my God. And so can we make this tour then personal? And we do so not merely by stopping here at 1 Kings 6, but, but by turning to the New Testament. And so do that with me. Turn to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9. For the Old Testament will give us a description that, that, that this temple that Solomon built was, was the throne room of God, the, the ark of the covenant, the footstool in which God would rest his feet. The Psalms will describe the, that, that this is the place where God will dwell and show us that, that the Old Testament temple was always meant to point us to something greater, to a picture of God's heavenly temple, and to the work, we're told in Hebrews 9, of Jesus himself. So we turn to Hebrews chapter 9. We see in verse 7 the description of what took place in 1 Kings. Look at Hebrews 9, verse 7. Only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people, the sins the people had committed in ignorance. You see the description that that Hebrews gives us of what took place then. The high priest had to take a blood sacrifice, a sacrifice for himself because he was a sinner, a sacrifice to even atone for the place because it was built by sinners and kept by sinners. But we see then the contrast that is shown here in Hebrews 9 because the book of Hebrews is really about showing us the greatness of Jesus, that Jesus is greater than the prophets of the Old Testament, even greater than Moses. That Jesus is greater than the temple of the Old Testament. That Jesus is greater than the priests of the Old Testament. That Jesus is the great sacrifice. He is the true high priest. And so look at the contrast that is set between what used to take place in that physical temple, but what Jesus has done. Hebrews 9, verse 11. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that He has died as a ransom, to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. You see what the author of Hebrews is, is showing us? He's showing us what, the, what the, the temple meant in the time of Solomon, it was the place of sacrifice, but he was also showing us that, that even in the time of Solomon, we knew that it wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't be enough for the the priest to continue to atone for his own sin because even the mediator himself was a sinner, the Old Testament high priest. We needed a, a great high priest, Christ himself, who doesn't have to atone for his own sins because he is the one without blemish, the one perfect and pure, the great high priest and the true sacrifice for our sins. And so the atonement that Christ offered on the cross is accepted in the heavenly throne room of God. And so can you say, like David did, David and Solomon anticipating the the greater work of God, that the Lord is my God. See, it's not enough for you to take pictures on this tour, to have memories of what this temple looked like. Even the inner access that you've had, the -the behind-the-scenes look at at what takes place in this temple, you need to make this personal. You need to realize that the the tour guide who has walked us along is the Savior himself himself. Jesus, the great high priest, Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, who gave himself for you. So, if we were to book our our tickets for this trip, the destination is not Jerusalem. Solomon's temple does not stand today, and it need not be rebuilt. For the sacrifices are done. Jesus Christ has made the sacrifice once for all. Our destination is the new heavens, the new earth, the eternal kingdom of the Savior, in which the Holy of Holies, will be extended throughout the whole of the universe. That's the description the, the end of the Bible will give to us. That that, that cubic description of, of the, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven is a description that, see, now God's, God's presence isn't limited merely to that holy of holies. God's presence is everywhere. For Christ himself has come and given his life for us. He shed his blood. And so how does the Torah end Today? Will you walk away merely with pictures, merely with memories, merely with a description of what it meant for someone else? Or will you make this personal? Will you turn from your sin? Will you find your sacrifice in Christ? So you are invited today into the most holy place, into the holy of holies, into the presence of God. You are invited by Jesus himself. Let me pray for us. Father, we give you thanks for your word. Lord, that you are willing to confront us with the reality of our sin. But Lord, that you don't leave us there. That even when we fail to keep the the promises that you have given to us, even when we fail to obey you, you are God who, who proves your faithfulness to us. Lord, even in the face of the failure of Solomon the king, we find the greater son, Jesus himself. And so, Lord, for those who doubt if if Christ can be the truth, if he can be the way, Lord, I pray that even as we conclude this worship service, even as we acknowledge as a church Jesus to be Savior, that those who, who doubt would find your word to be true. They would turn from sin and trust Jesus as their King, their Savior, their great high priest, their atoning sacrifice. Father, for those of us who consider ourselves your followers, your disciples, Lord, I pray that you would would let us give with joy, with extravagance to the work of your kingdom. Lord, that the nations would see the sacrifice of Christ, that they would hear it proclaimed by us. Lord, give us boldness this week to, to announce the death, the resurrection, and the reigning work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we rejoice in all that he has done for us, and so we pray in his name. Amen.